This is a Centre for Stories podcast. I'm Claudia from the team here at the Centre for Stories, and I'm excited to introduce you to our story this week. Before we get into it, I wanted to share with you one of our upcoming events. Liminal Magazine is an online and print publication which shares stories from Asian Australians. On July 12th, we will be welcoming editor of Liminal, Leah Jing McIntosh, to the Centre for Stories to present a day-long workshop on starting a journal. This will pay attention to publication, photography, interviews, grants, events and community, and is suitable for a wide range of people. Tickets for this event are available via our website. You will also find details in the information section of this podcast. We hope to see you there. Today's story is part of our Roaring 90s series, a collection of stories from our community elders collected through 2018. This collection of stories features the memories of yesteryear, accounts of war, racism, technological triumph, assimilation and social change. Lois Griffiths was 94 when this interview was recorded. She shares her memories of the Second World War, the devastation it caused and life thereafter. At just shy of 95, her memories of early life in South Perth are as fresh as ever. We thank Lois for sharing her story. My name is Lois, or Lois, Sophia Griffiths. Lois, it rhymes with Joyce. Because, my, you see, my father was an Englishman, and that's how it was pronounced there. I had it before Lois Lane. I was born the 27th of March, 1924, in Western Australia, Victoria Park, Enfield Street, at 9.30pm at home, brought into the world by my grandmother, who was a qualified midwife. I am 94. I will be 95 in March. I am having a dirty big party. We asked Lois to share some memories from her early years growing up in Perth. My family came out from England prior to World War One. Well, I thought it was going to be a better life. In fact, they'd been in the army and they retired. And actually, they tossed up whether to go to Australia or South Africa and my mother was in the opinion that as she lived in South Africa that she would have servants and she didn't. She fell on her face, didn't she? She didn't have any. Well, she came to Australia thinking she would have servants, but there wasn't any. They didn't have servants in Australia. So, uh, as I say, she fell on her face and had to do her own housework. Then we moved to South Perth. It was a lovely place to live. We lived uh, our house opened up the front gate and you, and you fell in the Swan River because that was before the highway was built there. And it was called, it was an unmade, there was no road there, but it was called Melville Terrace in those days. Uh, do you know where the old mill is in South Perth? I used to play in that because it was just down the street from where I lived. And I used to swim in the Narrows with my brother, unbeknownst to my mother. I only played boy sports, you see. I had five brothers older than me, and my sister was much older and she was very crazy. So I used to play sport with the boys, and I, you'd find me up a tree or, or wherever they were, so was I. I was most certainly a tomboy. My mother wanted me to be pretty like my sister. Instead of that, I was sunburned and brown as everything, as you can imagine. I didn't have blonde curly hair. I had dark brown reddish hair, which was kept short with a fringe. So I was absolutely 
completely different to my sister. She could sing like a bird with a soprano voice and I had a contralto. I used to swim all day and I only came in because my mother never shouted, the ladies didn't do that. And uh, she blew a whistle, three blasts, and I had to come in, otherwise no one worried what I did all day or any day. Because you see, I had older parents. Uh, my mother was 42 when she had me and my dad was 52, so I must have been a hell of a shock to them actually. It was much older, she'd had a grown up family. So the only one that was close to me was a brother who was three years older. And of course he was killed in the war. So um, that's those things that happened. But I had like four or five fathers. You could walk where you pleased without any fear of, of anything. No stranger danger or anything. I used to go to guides and come home on a push bike at well, 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night and no one ever thought that they should meet me or do anything of that nature. I went to Kensington School when it first opened for one year and then my mother, as she'd been in the army where they used to change where they lived every couple of years, we might we moved all over the place. It might only be one street but it would be in the same area. And then we moved to this place by the zoo, just by the zoo. This is where we lived on the river. And I used to have to go past the zoo every day to school to go up to Forest Street School. And my claim to fame at school, I was all right, a very good student, that had to be anyway. No, anything else would have been frowned on in my family. But I was the tallest girl in the school. I was five foot two. I never grew after that. I'm five foot one now, I've lost an inch. <laughs> well, I am going down, I am an old lady, you know. Lois moved to Sydney with her family as a teenager. Here, she began the journey of becoming a strong and independent woman in a man's world. I've always been me, said what I like and do what I like. And I try everything and have a go at anything. And then in 1938, my parents decided they'd had enough of Western Australia and they moved to Sydney. I thought it was horrible at first. I only spent one day at the school there and decided that was enough. Went out and got myself a job. What did you what, what did you do for your first job? I was a person in the showrooms. I was upper class, of course, and I used to show the people. They people made hushabye dolls, and I used to be their uh, lady that showed things to all the proposed clients. I didn't like the bloke that was running it. He tried to make a pass at me, so I told him where to go and, and left. You had to be well presented and, and all the rest of it to try and get all the customers in because you see, this I was a child of, depre of the depression and just before World War Two, things and jobs were very hard to get, very hard. And and my father had retired, so to have a kid <coughs> my age when you retired <coughs> is not easy to do. So I felt I didn't want to be a burden on my family, so I just went and myself a job so talking and about I was, sorry yeah. i don't mean to interrupt it's hard to tell when to when you stop um i don't I, the depression would have been a very difficult time what did you see and experience during the depression well i know all my brothers except the younger one they all went and and worked in farms in western australia and they worked for their board and keep and they used to get what they called two pounds for a month's wages 
one was one was in the public service, and so they all had good jobs, but they all packed it, they all packed it in. You see, so rather than be a burden on the family, they all went and got themselves these jobs all around the place. So they went into the into the country and worked for farmers and, uh, who paid them. Was somewhere to live with free board, and they as I say, two pounds a month. My father worked; he worked in the bank, and he had a job. So we had we were better off than most people in those days. And as I say, all my grandbrothers, my sister was married because she was much older than me. She was almost nineteen when I was born. You see, and I, I was only a year and ten months older than my nephew. And sometimes I used to pull rank on him and make him insist on being called auntie. Yeah, well, see, I when I grew up in my family, girls always had to wait on boys. Mm. Yeah, because uh, and that and, and even though I was quite young, so I had to clean my brother's shoes and press their serge pants with brown paper so they wouldn't get shiny. And I got fed up with that. So I thought, well. I'll start charging them, and it doesn't sound much, but I used to charge them threepence a pair to clean the shoes. So much so that I was able to go to the Perth Royal Show with enough money to buy every sample bag they had in the show. (laughs) So they started then cleaning their own shoes. So I made up my mind that ever I had sons, they would learn to wash, iron, sew on a button, cook their own food, and do, do all the necessary things to make them and my daughter-in-law's love it. And at South Perth School, I was the goalkeeper in a girls' soccer team. None of this wishy-washy stuff for me. And I also was taught by my brother, who was my second brother, who was, he was nine years older than me, that to play tennis like a boy. And I used to serve like a boy because we had our own grass court. Lots of people had their tennis court and their own courts in those days. And I was taught to serve like a boy so much so I was banned at school to play against girls. I could only play against boys. And I had my life saving certificate by the time I was 11 years of age. I used to, went to Como. It was compulsory to go to swimming in those days at school and they wanted to know me because of my good looking brothers. But yes, it is, yes. Except one girl, I, I belonged to the St James Younger set in Sydney because that's where you went. And she was always on. She said, I'd love to meet your brothers and then she was always on about common sailors because sailors mm. ordinarily before the war were looked down upon you know mm. just in the navy sailors anyway she wanted to meet my youngest brother and on this particular time he'd come up to to see what i was doing so he was in his naval uniform and i said you want to meet one of my brothers she said yes i do i said well this common sailor belongs to my younger brother so uh, she backed off. See, I got married quite young. I wasn't I wasn't 18 when I was married. Mm. Yeah, well, I was... Girls in those days were far more mature than the girls of today would be. I mean, they're at school still at 18 half mm. the time. Mm. But but I was married, and, uh, and I'm 19 years older than my first child. Mm. And then I became pregnant, and, of course, that's the end of me working there. Yes, well, there was no... Well, in the wartime, that changed. Ordinarily, you see, no school teacher was allowed to be married when I was going to school, yeah. unless she was the breadwinner. 
Yes. You had, no, there was no, no married women in the public service, quite restricted actually. Mm-hmm. I think that women, if they do, if she's a breadwinner, and I believe if both of them go to work, they both should share the home chores. I don't see why one bloke should sit down and read the paper while the other comes home and has worked just as long as him mm-hmm. on half of that amount of pay and, and have to wait hand and foot on a bloke. That didn't happen in my house. I just thought I was being me. Sometimes it still happens. Some of these blokes think that they are little King Kongs in their own house. But Mm. no, I had the kindest, gentlemen's man for a husband. During World War II, Lois worked in a munitions factory. She was an air raid warden during the 1942 attack on Sydney Harbour. I was 15. Oh, yes, we came over Sydney in 1938. My youngest brother... He was in the Navy, and my eldest brother was in Kokoda, and the other one was in the Middle East, and my brother, other brother was on American small ships when they came in. And the other one wasn't allowed to, to go to the war because he was in charge of Cyclops, who used to make toys, but they went into munitions during the wartime. Well, I started to be in, in the munitions. I had no option. That's where I had to go. And I was, I was a uh, inspector of batteries. And they used to call me Hawkeyes because if it wasn't right up, I'd send it back. Then I said, well, if you had brothers fighting in the war, you'd want to know that the battery that your sister had passed was in full condition and not, not have any faults in it. That was my attitude. And I was an air raid warden at the age of 16. And to be an air raid warden, you had to have home nursing ability and, of course, had to learn all about gases and, and carry a gas mask. And when the, or the alert sounded, you'd have to go out and take up your position in the streets which you were allocated to. Well, they, they did, the, the, the Japanese did shell Bondi. And, uh, and we were down in our place where we had to go to the shelter. We heard and the plane went over, but we, we were quite safe, mm. yeah. I was downstairs in this huge block of units that had walls that had been there. They'd be about two feet thick there. And we were looking over Sydney Harbour. That's where I was living with my parents there. That's where I met my husband, yeah. Every time the alarm went... We'd have to go down there, but I wasn't. I had to go out and do my stuff as an air raid warden. We always took it that it was the real thing. Always, because you after the... And they'd had a, a submarine in, up at Sydney Harbour. It had gone under and it got into Sydney Harbour by coming behind a, a ferry and they came up in the wake of the ferry. And there was some a ship called the Cuttable at Garden Island and they sunk that with a lot of sailors that used to be in transit there. That's why Darwin was bombed and they never let on till afterwards. My brother's ship was in Darwin when it was bombed and quite a lot of people were killed. Yes. You go down Port mm-hmm. Headland, you can see there in the low tide, even now sometimes you can see the wrecks of some ships mm-hmm. that yeah. had limped down. And... Lois's husband, Les Griffiths, was in the Navy. His time away fighting for Australia was to impact Lois and Les for the rest of their lives. Well, my husband came back from the war and it was the children 
that kept him on his feet because he loved them so dearly. And me, he didn't. He said he didn't need friends. He had me and the children. That's all he ever wanted. He'd had a shocking childhood himself, mm. and he he'd buy. They wanted to make him a, a TPI, which is a totally incapacitated. That's what it stands for. Yeah. And I wouldn't have it because when he came back, they said he only had three years to live. So he went round to the enlistment thing and joined the AIF and within six months he was back over where he was ever been before. Mm. And he was in the Battle of El Alamein and he was in New Guinea. But he came back and they called me and said that um, whilst I put my affairs in order, I had two little children at this stage. I was 22 and he was 26. And um, they said, because in our opinion, your husband only has three years to live. I never told him this and that mm. because what you don't do there. Mm. And I just turned around to these three old Fossett, Tolly Dale, old doctors sitting in a row and I just said, since when can you play God? So they said, well, it's in your hands. So my hands must have been pretty good because he was 88 when he died. Mm. He had been blown up mm. in when the El Alamein. But honestly, also he had this, what they call this, syndrome of anxiety that the soldiers and that are getting now. But they didn't know how to treat it. And you know, what they used to put was electric electrodes Mm. on their head in little things and they used they sent him down to the mental asylum in Goulburn, which they used to put all the all servicemen that had that condition put these electrodes on and give them electric shocks. He did have that Mm. and when he came back because he was as right death taking a holiday mm. and I said you know was it very bad he said well Loy I was lucky he said I had you and the children to think about and I picked on thinking about you mm. and the children he said those that had nobody went dropper mm. it was a shocking thing and they mm. haven't improved much with the, the way they treat these blokes when you're trained to kill it's very hard then to have a normal life mm. yes he had minor injuries he was in shocking pain poor love but I was his carer for many many years as lucky he knows mm. it did keep him going and I had six of the best kids that anybody could have they never ever caused their father any anxiety mm. whatsoever and that they would do all sorts of things and my husband decided because uh, he lived in the bush and went at Southern Cross, actually, out in the bush there. And um, he did a, he's got his, uh, elect, his engineering degree when he was in his 50s. He's gone to tech and got it. And oftentimes he was going to pull out because he was on, working as well when he could. And uh, my number two son said, he was a wizard mouse, and he sat down and he said, nah. Only kids drop out, not dads, get on with it and I'll show you. And they used to all stand in a line and play imaginary violins to him, hearts and flowers. So he had to get on and do it. And a lovely man. We had a farm and it was real good fun for the kids Mm. to grow up. Okay. But he was spending more and more time in hospital and it used to be that I had to learn to do everything on the farm. Just out of Gundagai in New South Wales, I was in my... Well, I was 33 when Michael was born and he was born in Manly Hospital, so we'd left there by then. Mm. My youngest daughter was just about 18 months old. Mm. 
so she's older than him. So, um, yeah, so we left the farm, but I had to do all the, all the things on the farm because he was spending more time in the base hospital. So I can drive a tractor and I had a licence to drive a truck as well as a car. Mm. And I had quite a, a funny experience because I never had any lessons to drive a car. And he had such blinded faith in me. He said, you've been sitting beside me this time, you should be able to drive. So I said, all right, I will. So I left for a round the paddock because he never told me you had to put the clutch in or whatever you do, it was manual. But he said, oh, well... I'm going to uh, put some super on the on the paddock. He said, I'll stand on the truck. We had a truck as well, that small one. And then he said, you can drive the truck. And when I say stop, do. But he never told me to put the clutch on before the brake. So the result is he was standing on there. I did what I was supposed to didn't do what I was supposed to do. And the next thing I know, I'd lost the back wheel and shot him off. So he picks himself up and dusts himself and he says, oh, well, we'll try again next time. The next week, he said, we're going to go and pick up the bales of loosen that he had done. Mm. And he said, you will idle. And I said, idle? What in the hell? How do you idle? <laughs> and uh, he said, you'll find out. So I did. So he would be putting the bales on one side and I'd be shooting them off the other. <laughs> we had some glorious experiences yes. on the farm. I really, really did. And I, I didn't. I used to drive around without a license, and I'd park the car outside the town and walk in and do the shopping and come out. And um, my eldest son was a bit sick, so I thought, oh well, I better go and get a driving license because you went to the police station in those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I rolled up, and it was a dreadful policeman we had there. He'd been banned from the Sydney because he used to hide behind trees and all sorts of stuff. And um, when I went in, he said, oh, Mrs. Griffiths, the lady that leaves her car on the outside of the town and walks in. He said, I know you can drive, but we're still going to go through it all. He took me to every hill stop he could find. He said, that would be, I'd expect that of you. <laughs> and he said, now, dude, this is a theory. And he asked me every question in the book. And he said, how come you know them so well. I said, I've got them hanging up over where I do the washing up. So he said, all that I can say, lady, you must do a hell of a lot of washing up. So now he said, now I know you've done this. Now that, that big truck that you drive to the silo, you can come in and do, we'll all do this all again tomorrow to get a truck license. <laughs> so I, and I knew in those days you had to do a three point turn, which meant that you had to go forward, back, back, and turn without getting onto the shoulder of the of the road. So I thought, aha, so, which we did. And he said, I might have known. So I got my truck license. So I've always had a car license and a truck license. Well, I could do what I liked, which I used to like. And I used to, as long as I was home for the kids from school, I never minded what I, did, what I did. And I used to belong. I was the president of the CWA when we was in the country. And I used to teach... Um, handicapped kids craft work when I went to Sydney. I've always done crafts. I've done all sorts of stuff like that. So um, and kept busy. I've always been busy and uh, been uh, the president of the RSL Women's Victoria for 37 years in mm -hmm. Sydney. In 2015, when Lois was 91, she had heart surgery to implement a transcatheter aortic valve or TAVI.
Her mindset, it simply had to be done. It was one of the first they, they did. They called it a tavy. Yeah. They go in through your groin and up here. I had to have a valve replaced. I've got a pig's valve doing its job there now. Mm. And uh, it's, I was one of the first that they had had it at a private hospital. And um, they did it on the Friday. I was walking on the, the hospital on the Saturday and I was charged to go home on the Sunday. I have a see the specialist next February. He hasn't seen me for 12 months. No, and it hasn't stopped me doing whatever I want to do. No. Well, they did. They, because, you see, I was the first one. There was another lady done in the afternoon uh, and she treated herself as an invalid. I never treated myself as an invalid. And they used me then as their to go down and talk to all sorts of people. And they had a, um, I didn't know all these eminent surgeons. I had six, a team of six. Mm. And I used to call them my boys because they're younger than my own children. And I said, if you think I'm going to call you doctor this and that, I've got children equally as qualified as you as any in other fields. And I have no awe of doctors. So they said, fair enough. So they didn't, didn't worry. And then they had a, a 150 GPs at a, at a seminar down in the Gold Coast. So uh, they said, would I go down and show them what could happen? So I went down and they paid all expenses and they said, would you like to, to stay the weekend at the Gold Coast? And I said, that crappy place, I couldn't be bothered. So um, I said, no, I'd come home. And they treated me extremely well. And there I had to sit up on the stage as Queen of the May, as you might say, mm -hmm. for them to look at this person that had done this thing. And I didn't realise until I saw the, the, the picture behind me of all these doctors. They had all the things in the world. They were very, very qualified people in their own field. Mm -hmm. And anyway, they gave a microphone to me that I've been used to public speaking all around the place. It didn't ever worry me having microphones and being president of this and president of that held no, no fear for me. So I was able to field my own questions. So, so they said, well, any advice have you got to these GPs? And I said, yes. One, one is that when people as old as me come there to your surgery, just don't put everything down to old age. And don't be patronising. I said, they've been on this world longer than what you have. And they, even by experience, they probably know a lot more than you'll know for many more years. And they gave me a standing ovation. And the next time I went to see my boys, they came out and they said, there's an old bloke out here. He's worried about having this taffy done because mm. he was 74 and he said but I kept on he's kept on saying to me I'm 74 I said what's that got to do with it so they said speak to him and quieten him down so I said oh I said have no problems I said our Poon who is the specialist who's the head of the team I said he's a very very qualified bloke and you'll have no I said just get on but he said I'm 74 I said mm. I couldn't care a tinker's time I'm in the 90s that's of no consequence mm. I'd be dead and they told me all about it. They said what it would be and all the rest of it. And I said, what option have I got? And, and they explained that. And they said, you could go out under anaesthetic. And I said, so what if I do? I won't know about it. Well, they, they were, but, but they knew that there was no good 
I'd made up my mm. mind and there's nothing that they could say to, to do it. No. I didn't have to ask their permission. No. Never asked. And they were all on tender hooks for the whole thing. Mm. But as I say, I had it done one day, I walked the hospital the next day and was home the next mm. day. Well, of course I do. And I've got the <laughs> nicest house that anybody could have. Mm. And it's clean and tidy. And the lady cleaner's been here today and done the hard work for me. Mm. Breathlessness and the real pains in the... Yeah, really breathlessness. That was the main thing. And I'd have these feelings of I was going to pass out. Not not good. And I just happened to... Um, well, the first time it happened, I was... To, home and they put me in Redcliffe Hospital and there the doctor, which I told off anyway, um, he said, you better go home and make your peace because you'll be dead on Monday. And then he went, I went to my son's place and my daughter-in-law, the oldest one, she's a retired nurse and I had another attack so she called the ambulance and I went to another Holy Spirit Hospital and uh, it was... A different story. That's when they put me in on this program. Lois has lived a good life. She has a loving family and is surrounded by a supportive community. She spoke briefly about her support of gay and lesbian people, despite her elderly peers' more conservative views. It's none of my business, is it? Well, I think that they're out of order. I had a young one of my grandsons who's, who was gay. He brought a friend here. And uh, he said, can I bring a friend? I said, you know, the door's always open to anybody that comes here. And uh, he brought this, and this boy stood at the door. And he said, may I come in? I said, of course, you're a friend, aren't you? And I said, call me Nana. I said, I prefer to be called Nana than Watson. So uh, he said, yes, he said, and he started to cry. And I said, what's the matter? So he said, I'm not allowed to go home. I've been banned from home because I'm gay. And I said, oh, well, I said, your father had something to do with it because there's one thing that's missing from your makeup that was caused through your father not putting it there. So I said, forget it. So I went to the graduation of this young man and Peter, my, my own child, and um, I knew the parents were behind. And uh, I just said to this man, I said, how many... Uh, children have you got he said I had four sons but that thing up there is not mine mm. and I turned on him and I gave him something that he never thought he'd be and Peter was stood with his mouth open he said Nana I never thought you could do that I said oh it gets my goat and I said and to the woman I said and as for you you're not a mother's bootlace you gave birth to that child and he's yours and I suspect that you come across some people of your own age that would disagree quite strongly with you oh well they do but I said, well, everybody's entitled to their opinions. Mm. But I said, I have a much better better life than what you have. Mm. And people I'm accepted as I am for what I am. Mm. And so it goes on. Mm. Yeah, well, so. it's very, very interesting to hear someone of your era say things like that because it is has been an issue for older people to accept. Um, well, it has. It, it has because two old girls, because we have the community bus that picks you up and takes you to the library which I go every fortnight and take 14 books out and all the rest mm. of the jazz but um, these two came up and said we want to know what to do when we had to have the vote and I said well I can't tell you what to do that's something that you must do and um, they said well we one day we were in favour and one day we're not I said well 
you don't have to do it at all. I said, just put it in the garbage can if you don't want to be done. Mm-hmm. And that's if you're not happy with it. Mm-hmm. And this busybody, she, she poked her nose in and I said, and you shouldn't have been listening to our conversations. It's quite <laughs> private, private. She couldn't get over it. But these two old dears and my generation don't understand it about it at all. They really don't. I know now, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the, because we used to have a sing song in our house every Sunday, and I realise now, because I met him many years later, he was a hairdresser, and men that went into ladies' hairdressing usually were in those days, yeah. and he was. But it didn't make any difference to my brothers, who were all mm. what they were. I have another relative that had to wait until his grandmother died because. He's been had been in a relationship uh, with a fellow for over twelve years, and, mm-hmm. and that's his business. You treat a person as what they are, and I never take any notice of what people say. Mm-hmm. I've got to find out from it myself, and what they mightn't agree with you, they might agree with somebody else. But it's just life. Lois shared her tips for living a long, healthy life. I'm having a big party next year, which I hope as many can come. 95, mm. yes, that's there. And the, my group of tabby doctors reckon they're coming too. No, I've had the, the bestest life that anybody could have. And it's been all full of uh, things and value and that. And I have a nice house. I have a nice garden. And I have enough money, thanks to my husband, that if I want to go and buy a dress here or a dress there, I can do it. Mm. And if my family want me specially, like if mm. I would be over there for a wedding, mm. and so it goes on. I have a, I have a good... The only thing, and everybody knows, you can't live a lifetime with someone and not miss them. Mm. And I do find sometimes that the nights are a bit long. And you see, bed's not a happy place for me because of the arthritis, so I sit up and make cards and do whatever I can, find a word in a book or something or other, or read a book. There's no good whinging and whining about it, and to think that if arthritis is the only thing that I've got wrong with me at 94, I'm doing pretty good. Thank yeah, you. Well, Thank you for talking. I hope, hope for all my children yeah, too. Yeah, yes, mm. I really do. Mm. And as long as they keep safe... Do it and have a go. You don't know what you want to do. And if someone's, oh, I wish I'd done that, have a go. Don't say, I wish I could do it. Falls flat on your face. It doesn't matter. There's always something else. Mm. So that's, that's me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this story, please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast. If you would like to listen to more stories, to check out our upcoming events or to find out more about what we do, please head to www.centerforstories.com.